You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is up, Nets Nation? You are listening to a Sunday night edition of the Locked On Nets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. My name is Gavin Shaw, and after four years covering the Phoenix Suns and two as a Pac-12 Network broadcaster, I moved back to my native New York City to cover your Brooklyn Nets. You can follow me on Twitter at Gavin Shaw and the podcast at Locked On Nets. Now, if you're observant, you would have noticed that that self-promotion was a little bit shorter than it usually is, and that's because I am without the services of my co-host, Josh Bass, who's feeling a little under the weather. So uh, everyone, uh, send him some well wishes, uh, maybe a mug of, uh, of your finest orange juice and uh, a canteen of matzo ball soup, and uh, cross your fingers, hope he feels better soon, because I don't know how long I can keep this up. That being said, uh, to talk about the Nets' two games in Mexico City uh, over the last four days, uh, we are going to switch up the format a little bit. Uh, shout out to... Uh, Zach Lowe's 10 Things I Like and Don't Like, and James Marcita's, uh, uh, I guess, like a uh, way of recapping the game, uh, the host of Locked on Knicks. A big shout out to him. Everyone should go follow him on social media. And if you have a little bit of Knicks love in your heart, and I'm sure most Nets fans do, as a jealous Knicks fan myself, uh, you should uh, uh, you should give him a follow. Yeah, he's really good. All right, let's get into it. Likes, dislikes, pros, cons. Breaking down the Nets trip to Mexico City starting right now. All right, the Nets, uh, second in the NBA on the season in second half points per game at 56 and a half. They only had 36 against the Miami Heat. And now that was probably largely due to the elevation in Mexico City. You know, every NBA broadcaster in any Nuggets home game you watch will uh, mention it ad nauseum, uh, the elevation, the elevation. And, and you listen to guys talk about it in the league, you hear uh, Zach Lowe uh, giving way too many shout-outs in this podcast, but he is very deserving of it. His podcast with uh, Gary Harris, and uh, Harris talks about just how big of an advantage it is for Denver on a night-to-night basis. Mexico City's like, I don't want to say double because I didn't look up the exact figures, but they are significantly uh, higher above sea level than Denver is. So that was a really significant factor, and you'd think the Nets, they were there a few more days. They had more time to adjust than the Miami Heat. You would be incorrect on that point. Uh, according to uh, Sarah Kustak, who did her research and talked to the Nets trainers, and her, she made the point during the game that it's actually the longer you're there, the more it starts to affect you because your body, uh, and again, any, anyone in the medical field listening to this, I apologize for probably butchering this explanation, but essentially what she said is like the longer you're there, um, the more red blood cells your body has to produce to compensate for the elevation, and eventually your body just can't make them at that rate, and it catches up with you, and uh, you get really, really tired, and that's what happened to the Nets. Again, Miami ending the game on a 51-32 run. Fast break points of the game were something like 42 in the Heat's favor, it was not uh, the game for you if you like exciting up and down basketball. All right, uh, next point. And remember, these these are kind of jumbled. I know I was just talking about the Heat, and now I'm going to go back to talking about the Thunder. It's just the way I organized my notes pre-show, so I apologize for that. All right, uh, they only scored seven points in the first seven minutes against the Thunder, so it was, it was like they played two really solid halves of basketball, and the elevation caught up with them on the front end and the back end because they just were lethargic to start that first game. 
Um, and the Thunder, because of it, took a 16-point lead in the first quarter. It was 33-17 in, in a game the Nets would eventually win 100-95. And, and, and the big shift, and I, I want to I start with the, with the negative here, was the Thunder were dominating in the pick-and-roll early in the game. Uh, Russell Westbrook weaving his way through the Nets' defense, just too explosive for really any of the Nets' perimeter guys to guard uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about this because this got me uh, kind of upset. Uh, four fouls in 15 minutes of game time to start the game. So that wasn't his first 15 minutes on the court. That was the first 15 minutes of the actual game. By the nine-minute mark in the second quarter, he had four fouls. I thought a lot of them were BS, but uh, some of it was because he had to uh, guard Russ, who was exploding into the lane, finding Steven Adams, who was like the one guy who shot the ball well for the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, and uh, he was making all these pinpoint passes in tight spaces. Just Russell Westbrook, and I know this is a lazy descriptor, but it was just Russell Westbrook doing Russell Westbrook things. All right, let, let's get to Dinwiddie, though. Four fouls, 15 minutes of game action, and, and he was getting upset after every single one of them, like really, really mad, like he wanted to punch someone, and I think that was a reasonable reaction because they were the softest fouls I've seen called against a net this year. And I like to think I'm not biased in this conversation, given the fact that I'm not really a Nets fan, though I do love Dinwiddie and I do love his game. So maybe maybe that's a little bit of it. So I'll, I'll caution with that. But but the one where he got to the elbow, went up for a shot and he, he like kind of grazed the chin of some helpless Thunder defender. It was either Brinus or Roberson or someone. Uh, and, the, and they called, it was like the kicky, tackiest foul, especially considering that he made the shot. So Spencer Dinwiddie, I can empathize with your frustration early in the game. And, and then the Nets in general, I think they were frustrated as a team because anytime they touched Russ, you, if they got within five feet of him, you, you, you'd hear the whistle blow. And I'm getting a little conspiratorial here, but I think Russ, uh, at one point he like airballed like a 14-foot jumper by like five feet. And on the replay, you saw like the defender didn't, really touch him it might have been Alan Crabb and I just feel like he's almost like playing with the ref's mind he's like you really think I'm gonna miss that jumper by that much and he gets the call there because nine times out of ten the ref isn't gonna have like the testicular fortitude to go out there and say yeah you know what you did just miss that uh 12 foot jumper by five feet on your own accord Russell Westbrook Mr. Triple Double uh yeah, so that annoyed me, and I. But I credit Russell Westbrook for the mind trick. Uh, if you're a superstar, you got to leverage that stuff as much as you can, and he did a really, really good job of it. Uh, something that made me kind of sad. So I'm putting in the con, even though it's a credit to the Nets. Uh, Carmelo Anthony looking washed, uh, nearly broke my Knicks loving heart. Uh, he was five for twenty from the field for the game, and the Nets were basically just like baiting him and Carmelo Anthony out of anyone in the league is really really easy to bait if he gets the ball and he doesn't immediately pass it he's looking to shoot 90% of the time he's going to jab two or three times and, and and now he's just he's just gotten lazier than ever like normally he'd jab and like occasionally he'd like give like a little up pick and then blow by someone for a dunk or he'd he'd step back into a three and now he's just he's living in the mid-range he's taking shots Rondé Hollis Jefferson did a really good job of giving that shot up but also getting a good contest on it which is just the best possible way you can defend Melo, and because of it, Melo shooting 25% from the field, only scoring 11 points on 20 shots. Just one of the worst games in what's been an incredible career for him. All right, uh, almost done with the cons, but bear with me. We have a couple more. Uh, Quincy AC continuing to lead the league in missed dunks. He pump faked his way past, uh, which it was, it was one of the Thunder big guys. 
and uh, got, I think it might have been Roberson, honestly. He, like, he threw a pump fake. Guy goes flying by him. Went up from about six feet out, and at that point, you're just like, all right, there's no way we're finishing that. But he actually got to the rim and had insane elevation on it, really long arms, and just conked it off the back of the rim, much to the chagrin of everyone in attendance in uh, Mexico City. It would have been an awesome dunk, but instead, he continues to lead the league in missed dunks. Jared Allen uh, was up there early in the season, but Quincy AC, it seems like any time he goes through it, I, I, he, he might have a dunk this year. I don't know, but he tries like one every other game, and it just never, ever, ever goes in. So if, if there's a fan of another team out there or someone who's watching a lot of league pass and there's another contender, uh, let us know at Locked on Nets at Gavin Shaw. Shoot me a tweet, but he is up there. Um, I was also kind of personally offended by Justice Winslow's game because I was a big uh, stan of his uh, early um, in his college career and in the NBA draft to the point that I didn't think it was insane that Boston wanted to trade like four picks for him back in that uh, 2015 draft, but he just has never really gotten a shot together. And then this game, of course, against our Brooklyn Nets, the team we all love so much, five or six from the field, four of four from behind the arc, just... Uh, he was he was he was incandescent. I don't know how else to describe it. He was he was absolutely incredible, and it was him and Tyler Johnson both going off simultaneously. That even though the Nets didn't have their best stuff, if those two guys aren't hitting like everything they take, uh, maybe they're in the game. But because of it, uh, they were kind of doomed to lose this one. Also gave up a bunch of dribble penetration against the Miami Heat. That's where Tyler Johnson really hurt them. Goran Dragic seemed like he could get anywhere he wanted. He even uh, dropped Spencer Dinwiddie, our hero with a vicious crossover uh, early in the second quarter of that one. Uh, yeah, so all around uh, poor night against the Miami Heat, and that was kind of the uh, cherry on top of the poop Sunday. All right, uh, after that eloquent descriptor by yours truly, uh, I want to I wanna get into the pros of what we're talking about. And also, this is a tease of a tease, something uh, rarely used in the podcast game, but I'm I'm going for it. We're going to tell you about a big podcast coming up later this week, uh, or at least I am since Josh isn't here. Um, yeah, I will I will get to that later in the podcast. Pros, they beat the Thunder despite playing 29 minutes without a point guard because just about all of them were out for the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Jeremy Lin, out for the season. Uh, D'Angelo Russell out for an indefinite amount of time. Isaiah Whitehead not in Mexico City for the first game. Sean Kilpatrick released. So it was on the shoulders of Karis LeVert, who I don't consider a point guard, really. I think I think he can kind of play the position, but he's his, close, his best descriptor would be a combo guard. And if you put a gun to my head, I'd, I'd lean towards calling him a shooting guard. Oh, no one pursues that course of action, though. Um, yeah, so 29 minutes without a traditional point guard against the star-studded, uh, admittedly without Paul George, Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Nets uh, down 16 without Dinwiddie. Still able to pull that off, and that's because Karis LeVert played, uh, for my money, the best game of the season, and I didn't watch him as much last year, but I'd, I'd uh, gander to say the best game of his young NBA career. 21 points, a career high, 10 assists, 5 rebounds, Everything was working for him, and, and to top it all off, he stripped Russell Westbrook. Um, that led to a spectacular play by Spencer Dinwiddie, a dunk that all but ended this one uh, with about a minute 40 left in this game. A uh, couple more notes on LeVert's night. He's shooting 
so, so much better recently over these last 10 games. Like early in the season, uh, me and Josh like constantly talking about this. this is such a big issue for Josh. I think it really does keep him up at night. Um, Levert like rushing shots. And now he just looks so confident, so in rhythm. And I, I know we keep mentioning that it's a lot easier when you have the ball in your hands and without D'Angelo Russell, without Jeremy Lin, he's inevitably going to be more effective, um, which is kind of counterintuitive just because there's more defensive focus on him. But I, I think that's, that's really like a litmus test for if a guy's a good NBA player or not. You give him a bigger role and he plays better, he's probably a good, you know, I'll, I'll cancel that. He's definitely a good NBA player. You give a guy less of a role and he plays better, he's probably a bench guy in the NBA if he belongs in the league. So uh, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of my thoughts on that. Uh, but more stuff on Levert's A Great Night. He's making really complex, like cross court reads. He like they, like there are times where he'll break down the defense and guys will be wide wide open. Like he he'd one play in this one where he um, got past Westbrook with a nasty in and out dribble and uh, drew four Thunder defenders in the lane, just threw it out to Allen Crabbe. Now that's really nice. Like obviously he's explosive, he's talented, but that's not really a great read. That's a guy who's really good at getting the basket, drawing the defense in, and then making the obvious pass. A great read is when you take a dribble in off a pick and roll, look off another defender, and then throw the ball cross-court. That, that's a LeBron-type read. He did that one time. Spencer Dinwiddie did that one time in this game, and Spencer Dinwiddie was even more ridiculous. Um, but we, I don't want to get too off track. Anyways, Levert making really, really smart plays with the basketball, seeing the game really well, and I think that bodes extremely uh, good for his NBA future. All right, uh, that's let me see what else did I have on him. Oh, I really like the over-the-top feeds to Jared Allen. We remember uh, two games before, again, or I guess at that point just a game before, against the Atlanta Hawks uh, during that win in uh, Atlanta. Yeah, it was in Atlanta. Um, he kept setting Jared Allen up with those ridiculous alley-oops. And then this game he had another one where he drew a defender over and then threw it over two guys into Allen with like that insane seven-foot-six wingspan to just kind of snatch it up with one hand. And, and he's gotten just so much more confident catching the ball. So his plays are actually starting – to work now, and I, I think that's James Harden-esque. Like, that, that's the reason, like, you look at Harden's assist numbers and you're like, why are they so ridiculous? Like, obviously, it's like a product of, like, the Rockets having, like, great shooters all around him and them running quite a bit. But the biggest thing is his ability in the pick and roll to throw high-arcing, accurate passes to his big guys. And I think just because the passes, like, I, I don't want to, like, underrate them. They're really, really impressive. But the biggest thing is just having the confidence to throw those passes and... Uh, Harden more than any other guy in the league trusts his bigs if he puts in the right position to go catch it and get it and I always feel like guards are scared of doing that because when it goes wrong it looks really really ugly and your coach screams at you but Karras the fact that him and Levert oh excuse me not him and Levert him and Jared Allen have that trust and chemistry when they're both under 24 or under 25 I forgot how old Karras is that's insane to me that, that's just ridiculous. That, that is so, so impressive. And I think uh, that combination, we said it before, I'll say it again before the end of the season, that bodes really, really well for the Nets going forward. All right, a couple final pros as we finish up this podcast. Alan Crabb, the nominal point guard when both Levert and Dinwiddie with his four fouls were out of the game. And I think just the fact that Kenny Atkinson trusts him in that role Speaks volumes to Crab's improvement as a ball handler as the season has gone on. Now he's like not great. He's not shaking anyone out of um, their shoes, but he's just been more and more confident 
um, as the season progresses. And I love the way he's playing of late. I've given the guy a lot of crap this season for not being as good as Joe Harris, in my uh, hot take opinion. But uh, he has been uh, over the last eight games uh, going into uh, the Miami one on Sunday on Saturday. He was averaging 15 points per and shooting a ridiculous 48% from three-point range. Alan Crabb, you, 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 want, you need to see him keep improving to live up to that contract, but he's back on track, I think, uh, after not looking very good to start the season. And, and I also want to throw out there, like, there are, like, a lot of guys in the NBA who look good when they're hot. Alan Crabb uh, is right up there with anyone. Like, his release, just, like, he hit those two threes off uh, screens to start the game, and his, his release is as good as anyone. And it's just, like, it, it really is kind of, like, Steph-esque in how, like, he'll just fire it up, and it's, like, a magnet is drawing the ball into the basket. Like, some guys have really good form, and it's, like, it's like feathery touch. With him, it's like there's like speed on the ball and there's ridiculous rotation and it just gets through the net like faster than most shots do. And that really does remind me of Steph Curry a little bit in that one element of his shooting. So Alan Crabb, when he's hitting it, when he's shooting well, a lot of fun to watch. All right, Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, two awesome FU moments. We spoke about all the frustration, all the annoyances at the beginning of this game, but then he, he just goes out there and... Uh, in the fourth quarter, playing with four fouls, maybe maybe even at five at that point against the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he gets fouled on a three-point attempt, just nails it. You could just tell how much like angst he had pent up, and it was all let out in that shot. He maybe he was so jacked up he didn't even make the free throw, but it was just awesome to see. And he he just continues like again, kind of like Crab, that just like sharp sharp form, and like I don't I don't know. Like, the best way to describe it, other than you just know when you see it, he just snaps his wrist, and the ball just, there's just, like, like a power behind it that's, like, awesome. And I think that's, like, really the difference between uh, NBA shooters and, like, good college shooters. It's, like, the speed they get on the ball. And, like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, like, Josh, if Josh were here, he'd stop me from going on this rant, but that's something that really fascinates me. And it was just such a good FU moment for Dinwiddie. And then an even better one uh, when LeVert poked it away from Russ, threw it ahead to him, and then there were two guys at the basket, like Steven Adams was right there, and I think like Russ was like trailing him maybe. And with like no hesitation, he just cuts between the two of them, flushes it down with one hand. And again, Dinwiddie, not the most explosive guy, but you don't have to be when you're six foot five. He's just power and confidence, and he put it right through. Uh, just a really exciting moment. All right, a uh, couple final notes. All right, uh, Jared Allen making reads off the pick and roll. That's really nice. He hit uh, Levert in the corner on one play where he just got it kind of on the run and immediately turned, clearly knew where Levert was even before he looked his direction. And just that spatial awareness, it's like a really small thing. But for a big guy, and especially a big guy coming into the NBA after his freshman year who was considered really, really raw, that was just that was just impressive. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of that from Jared Allen. Uh, Adam Silver had some nice things uh, to say about the Nets. That was pretty cool. And then uh, back to Jared Allen. Uh, they played him with Timothy Mozgov and uh, my conspiracy-loving brain reference for the second time this podcast. Kind of loved it because I think that was a dry run for him. Maybe playing with Jaleel Okafor, which, again, if you missed it, we broke down that trade on uh, Thursday night when it happened. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm interested to see those two play together because I think Allen could potentially <coughs> excuse me, make that lineup more palatable on the defensive end. 
and that's what you need if you're going to play Julio local for big minutes. And not that they were like great together. I think they probably only ended up playing together a couple minutes, but I like I like where Kenny Atkinson's head is at uh, trying that out. Uh, final notes on Dinwiddie. I mentioned earlier that cross court pass um, and just it was really it was a LeBron type read, and I know that sounds like I'm overhyping him or blowing smoke up his butt, but he was it, it was just it's just awesome to see Spencer Dinwiddie like his ability to read the court and to utilize his height to the fullest, both him and Karras doing that really, really well. And I don't, I don't know if that's something Atkinson taught them or something that it, it has to be pre-natural, prenatal, prenatural, I don't know, to uh, some degree. But uh, Dinwiddie, just ridiculous vision, And that's shown in his numbers. He extended his streak of six or more assists to 12 games against the Oklahoma City Thunder, which is the NBA's second longest streak behind the James Harden. Uh, against the Miami Heat, he had nine, so it ended up going up to 13 games. All right, and uh, one final pro for the Nets uh, before we get to the grinds my gears. This was the fourth time all season against the Miami Heat that they did not hit 100 points. Can I can I get like a round of applause for Kenny Atkinson and Sean Marks? I know the Nets play at an inflated pace, and everyone scores 100 points these games. It's not 2003 where that was like as rare as like a solar eclipse, but... With this roster, and especially with the injuries, with no D'Lo, no Jeremy Lin, this team, like, there should be a lot of nights where games are ugly, where they're scoring in the 80s, as they did against the Heat, or the low 90s. And, and they just, offensively at least, they get it done night in and night out. Obviously, some are better than others. Sometimes they just get a lot of shots up, and it's almost inevitable if an NBA team shoots a certain amount, they'll hit 100 points. But I think that's pretty amazing that in 25 games, the Nets have reached 100 21 times with, again, just in terms of roster talent, uh, probably one of the second or third worst rosters in the NBA. Maybe, maybe that's a little harsh. One of the five worst rosters in the NBA. So shout out to Kenny Atkinson. Shout out to Sean Marks. Shout out to Spencer Dinwiddie for keeping the ship moving. All right. Uh, I teased the tease earlier. Now the tease itself. Uh, Josh and I will be doing our trimester awards. That's right. Our tri- first trimester awards. Uh, we, we look at this next season as a baby, a baby that won't result in a draft pick, but a baby all the same. First trimester, we are going to give out awards, uh, probably Tuesday night, but, uh, TBD on that, uh, you'll, you'll definitely have it by Wednesday, uh, scouts honor on that. All right. Uh, what grinds my gears? I'm doing it, uh, to honor our fallen hero, uh, Josh Bass. What grinds my gears this week? Uh, why weren't there four teams in Mexico city? And I like hinted at being frustrated at it. Uh, a bunch of times, but uh, why did the Nets have two quote-unquote home games in Mexico City? Taking away one is one thing. Like I mean, like teams are like presumably over time going to like increasingly uh, take international trips and have games in different countries, uh, mostly Mexico, but maybe at some point in different parts of Canada. Maybe they'll have a London game, which seems insane in the context of an NBA schedule, but maybe a team could open the season there or something, have a few nights off. I don't know. I'm just thinking of like the way the league is trending. So one game, it's going to happen. The Nets got the short end of the stick. That's fine. But two home games in Mexico City, that's that's so freaking. That's just like unfair. And like I don't I don't know what the NBA is doing to make that up for the Nets. I don't know if the Nets protested it, but like I mean to take away that, I'm assuming they're making it up on the revenue front somehow. But just just in terms of record, to like put the Nets in that predicament where they have to play in this. It wasn't like a hostile environment, but uh, with with the elevation, it's, it's harsh, and I'm sure it takes a lot out of you, even though I know Eric Spolster was arguing that he liked the trip. I, I, I think to be punished for making that trip by losing two home games is, is ridiculous and kind of 
counterintuitive to what the NBA is trying to do with those trips. And then beyond that, what I mentioned initially, not having four teams there, the Nets were at a major disadvantage because they were the only ones who had to play two games. And as we talked about earlier, that elevation really got to them in the second game. And it was almost like they didn't totally have a chance to beat the Heat. And and beyond that, like the Heat were like the worst possible opponent to play fresh coming to that game because they're year in and year out the most well-conditioned team in the league. So basically, I think everyone is out to get the Nets. And I'm mad about it. If, they, if there were four teams there, everyone would have played two games. Um, everyone would have been equally tired. And uh, theoretically, I guess that would have helped them split up the home game, road game assignments better. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's what grinded my gears. Anyways, we will be back later this week. Thank you so much for listening to me and only me ramble on for 24 minutes. I promise it, uh, it'll, be, it'll be a rarity. Uh, Josh is usually pretty reliable. Maybe we'll give you a solo Josh pod. I think, I think that's what people really, really do want. Anyways, just for me this time, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back later this week. Peace out.